if you're following along in your handout, protecting marriages, protecting marriage, we're in part D, adultery. Last week we looked at how adultery is prohibited in Scripture. Uh, scripture repeatedly affirms that adultery is wrong. Adultery wrongly intrudes another, another person into that one flesh relationship in marriage. Uh, adultery wrongly pictures on faithfulness in the relationship between Christ and the church. Adultery destroys trust within a marriage, and adultery frequently destroys a person's life. Then we looked at safeguards against adultery, and now we're looking at part three there. Scripture sets an even higher standard. Do not desire to commit adultery. Uh, God requires of us not only purity of actions, but also purity in our thoughts and in our attitudes of heart. Uh, though none of us in this lifetime will ever be perfect in what our hearts desire, we can still hope, we can expect to actually be growing in purity. Our hearts will be growing in purity for the course of our lives. Uh, we can also take comfort in the forgiveness that Christ promises us when our hearts go astray. So think of 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. The book of Proverbs has a similar command regarding a person's attitude towards Someone who is not his wife, do not lust in your heart after her beauty. Proverbs 6.25 And when our hearts are more perfectly conformed to these commandments, those of us who are married will find uh, a deeper love for our own wife, our own husband, and a deeper desire for maintaining a healthy sexual relationship within our marriage. But that's the foundation, that's the, the motivation, these, these kinds of commands. Purity of heart in this regard will also lead, increasingly, to a genuine sense of revulsion to embracing somebody who is not our spouse in a, in a sexually affectionate manner. Um, there needs to be, as we become holier, sin becomes more and more tawdry. It becomes more and more disgusting. That's, that's something that we should all be recognizing in our walk with the Lord. Jesus taught in Matthew 5, 27 to 28, you have, heard it said that I, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This means that a man who is looking at a woman or a picture of a woman should be asking himself, why am I looking at her? If the honest answer... <laughs> that's, that's for the people who have kids in here and they can win it's Sunday school time. Um... Uh, so why am, I, why am I looking at this picture? Why am I looking at this woman who's not my wife, let's just say? Uh, if the honest answer is that you're looking at her for the purpose of arousing lustful thoughts in your hearts toward her, or thinking about having sex with her, uh, then Jesus says you have already committed adultery with her in your heart. And that man needs to turn from this sin and ask for God's forgiveness. The wisdom of God in these scriptural teachings... They reflect a, a common theme throughout Scripture, and that's wrongful actions begin in the heart. That's where it starts. Uh, and the following passages emphasize this. Proverbs 4.23, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Mark 7.21, from, For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. Uh, James 1, 14 to 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, some people hearing this, especially non-Christians or younger Christians, may think that such teachings are just impossible to follow. 
But the testimony of millions of believers throughout history has been that these teachings are not impossible to obey as a regular habit of life, even if we all fail in maintaining purity of heart in one area or another from time to time, or even if our hearts will never be completely pure until we die and we're in the Lord's presence. Uh, If we believe what Scripture says is true, then we must believe its teachings that people who have been regenerated, people who have been born again by the power of the Spirit, have an inward new power. The Lord, the, the God, the Holy Spirit, lives within us. He dwells within us. That is, the work of the Holy Spirit is our progressive holiness, our sanctification, and there's a power there to be overcoming temptation and to live lives of increasing moral purity. Paul says in Romans 8, 4, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And by the power of the Holy Spirit within us, we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He also says that if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Romans 8, 13. So the path of growth in personal holiness of life is an upward path on which God expects us to continue, and he enables us to continue step by step throughout our earthly lives. Questions about that? Pretty non-controversial stuff. (laughs) We'll get to the controversial stuff in a second. Sexual practices prohibited in Scripture. We looked at a big chunk of text last time from Leviticus, but incest is the first one. We're not going to read through that big text again, but a long section in Leviticus 18 prohibits various specific kinds of incest. It begins by saying, in sort of a very kind of literal translation of the Hebrew, none of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncovered nakedness. And commentators generally agree that to uncovered nakedness in this context is a euphemism for having sexual relations with a person. <clears throat> then the subsequent verse prohibits sexual intercourse and by implication marriage with one's mother, stepmother, sister or stepsister, granddaughter, aunt, daughter-in-law, sister-in-law, or stepdaughter or stepgranddaughter. I mean, you, you, it's a patriarchal culture, so you're seeing it move towards the women. So men don't marry or don't have sex with these relatives, but obviously it's, it's vice versa. Uh, one's daughter is not explicitly mentioned, since sex with one's own daughter would have been uniformly prohibited both in Israel and in the surrounding cultures. In addition, sex with one's stepdaughter or stepgranddaughter are prohibited in verse 17. And so surely, having sex with one's own daughter would have been more clearly prohibited. Uh, the prohibition against marrying one's stepmother is repeated in Deuteronomy 22.30. A man shall not take his father's wife uh, so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. There's no reason to think that these laws are limited only to the nation of Israel or the Mosaic Covenant only. They are matters that pertain to human conduct generally, and we should understand them as a helpful guide to the kind of life that pleases God in the area of human sexuality. That becomes one of those difficult subjects you have to kind of wrestle through. Bestiality is mentioned in the Old Covenant. It's not mentioned in the New Covenant, but bestiality is prohibited in the New Covenant. How is that? How do we actually see those signs of continuity, discontinuity? How do they go across covenant to covenant? So that's a much bigger question we're not going to answer today. Paul actually rebukes the Corinthian church for failing to discipline a man who was living in an incestuous relationship with his stepmother. 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. This statement indicates that Paul is astounded that the Corinthians don't think incest is morally wrong, that they're somehow living on, operating on a higher spiritual tier, and that doesn't apply to them, probably because, oh, well, we're in this... You know, that's, that's fleshy, we're spiritual, we're living on this higher plane. What you do in the body doesn't really matter. 
Um, this provides specific confirmation, though, that at least in this particular, the Old Testament laws about incest reflect an abiding moral standard of God. Therefore, it seems appropriate to conclude that the other standards about incest are also applicable today. Any questions about the incest text? We read that text last week and right through. Two, homosexual conduct. I'm going to treat the topic of homosexuality in a separate lesson entirely. At this point, it's just sufficient to note that both the Old Testament and the New Testament prohibit homosexual practice. Uh, Leviticus 18, 22, 20, 13, Romans 1, 26 to 27, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, 1 Timothy 1, 9 to 10. But we'll deal with that later, another unit. Having sex before marriage. The New Testament shows that sexual intercourse between two unmarried people is considered sin according to God's moral standards. This is seen in several passages that prohibit sexual immorality, such as 1 Corinthians 6.18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And the Greek word translated as sexual immorality is, everyone know? I just say it quite a bit. Porneia. Porneia. Yep. So it's, it's a widely inclusive term. It is, a, it is a big umbrella there that covers a lot of stuff uh, that refers to any kind of uh, unlawful sexual intercourse. Prostitution, unchastity, fornication. Uh, fornication is sex between people who are not married to each other. The fact that porneia refers to sex between people who are not married is seen in a statement from Jesus' Jewish opponents when they say, we are not born of porneia. We have one father, even God, which is a, a dig, obviously, at Jesus and, and his birth. Um, it's clear that they mean that they were not born out of wedlock, unlike you, Jesus, uh, as a result of sex between unmarried persons. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, 9, but if they cannot exercise self-control, the singles, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion, 1 Corinthians 7, 9. To avoid the temptation to have sex prior to marriage, Paul tells singles that they should get married. Uh, The assumption is that sex prior to marriage is sin. Finally, Paul uses marriage imagery to talk about his concern for the Corinthians. He says in 2 Corinthians 11.2, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. When he says, I betrothed you to one husband, he refers to the Jewish custom of betrothal, a legally binding agreement to be married at some future time. Paul uses the imagery of presenting the Corinthian church to Christ at his second coming as a pure virgin, that is, as a church that was faithful to Christ alone. But the image of pure virgin implies, once again, the expectation that in order to be considered morally pure, a bride would come as a virgin to her husband. Therefore, the first century readers of the New Testament would certainly have understood the, passage that, the passages that prohibit sexual immorality to be forbidding all sexual intercourse between unmarried persons. Questions about that? Gee, I'm actually going through this quite quickly because the, the next unit is, is large, so I just want to be able to read through it. So, G, physical intimacy prior to marriage. Or, is it sinful for unmarried couples to make out? What do you think? Does anyone dare wade into this one? <laughs> and you're being recorded for posterity, too. <laughs> no takers? All right. 
While scripture is clear that sexual intercourse prior to marriage is morally wrong in God's sight and ultimately harmful to a relationship, is there any further guidance that can be given regarding the degree of physical affection and intimacy that's appropriate between a man and a woman prior to marriage? The question that's often asked of pastors is, how far can we go? That's that's actually literally framed that way. How far can we go? Uh, There are longer Christian resources that seek to provide wise guidance in this area. I'm going to mention some in a second, but just add a brief comment here. If a man and a woman are already in a romantic relationship with one another, God has designed our human bodies in such a way... If one of them physically touches or stimulates the sexual organs of the other, that action will arouse a desire for further stimulation and ultimately awaken a strong desire to engage in sexual intercourse immediately. That's how it works. That means that the physical stimulation is more than an innocent expression of affection. Uh, It's an intentional awakening of the desire to have sex prior to marriage something that scripture explicitly forbids. Therefore, though it may be difficult, couples need to be cautious about the intensity of physical intimacy they allow for themselves prior to marriage. If the purpose of their actions is primarily to arouse strong physical desires that cannot be rightly fulfilled prior to marriage, then they've gone too far. Say it again. If the purpose of their actions is primarily to arouse strong physical desires that cannot rightly be fulfilled prior to marriage, then they've gone too far. And maybe it's not deli- the deliberate intention, let's arouse these physical desires, but it's happening and, you know, you, you went too far. And because I believe that God has given men a leadership role with respect to marriage, I would challenge men to show leadership and responsibility and respect in this area. In other words, in a dating relationship prior to marriage, the man should bear the primary responsibility for drawing boundaries on the extent of the couple's physical expressions of affection and intimacy. Uh, there's, a, there's a book, a paper, to Sex, Dating, and Relationships, A Fresh Approach, um, by Gerald Heaston. And this is, the, this is what the book is called, uh, Sex, Dating, and Relationships, A Fresh Approach. He writes this. Um, just three things. All sexual activity must be reserved for the marriage relationship. You say, yes. Right. Some forms of kissing are sexual. Therefore, sexual forms of kissing must be reserved for the marriage relationship. He writes this in a paper. Ambrose, who's a church father, once said, The condition of the mind is often seen in the attitude of the body. Thus, the movement of the body is a sort of voice of the soul. Indeed it is, and nowhere does the voice of the soul speak louder than in our sexuality. Sex carries such significance in our lives because it was ordained by God to point toward that which is most significant, Christ's relationship with the church. Thus the misuse of sex damages us in ways that other bodily sins do not. As the Apostle Paul states, every other sin is a a person commits outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body, 1 Corinthians 6.18. While thou shalt not make out is not as explicit as thou shalt not commit adultery. The Bible does indeed offer us a clear sexual ethic. Sexual activity is to be reserved for the marriage relationship. When we combine this sexual ethic, this is still um, 
Heistian writing. When we combine this sexual ethic with an intuitive understanding that sexual activity includes more than sexual intercourse, we can confidently conclude that all forms of sexual activity, even sexual forms of kissing, must be reserved for the marriage relationship. For too long, pastors and Christian leaders have neglected to provide uh, definitive instruction about the appropriate boundaries of premarital relationships. Telling singles that the Bible has nothing explicit to say about premarital sexual activity beyond its prohibition against intercourse is an unacceptable fulfillment of our pastoral responsibility. The stakes are simply too high and human sexuality simply too important. The reigning premarital sexual ethic of evangelicalism is muddled, it's unclear. The pressing need of the moment is for evangelical pastors and leaders to articulate a clearer, more pastorally responsible premarital ethic, one that is biblically authoritative, theologically robust, and sufficiently objective. And if this is something you want to know more about, I guess, again, Sex, Dating, and Relationships, A Fresh Approach by Gerald Haston, H-E-I-S-T-A-N. But that's, that's basically it all boiled down to a nutshell with that. Any questions on that front? Okay, the main event for today, and if you have your PDFs, we're, I'm just going to read along, okay, and you can, we're going to stop and make comments. This is on masturbation. This is by Tim Challies. Um, I agree with everything Tim says here, and uh, we, can, we can stop and talk about things along the way, um, but this is, I think, this is very wise. Tim has thought a lot about sex. You look at his, uh, his blog posts, and he has just a lot of helpful, helpful stuff. I would just recommend, read Charlie's blog. It's really good. He has excellent things there. So, so this, is what he, this is what he wrote, and you can follow along in your PDF. 12 or 18 months ago, this is, he wrote this a number of years ago, but 12 or 18 months ago, I wrote a couple of articles about the always difficult subject of autoeroticism, masturbation. That is a subject I hesitate to write about, and yet one that I feel is both important and relevant. It is a subject that takes us outside of our comfort zones, but hiding our heads in the sand and pretending it's not a real problem is almost unfair. I have an opportunity, I have had an opportunity in recent days to speak to young men and to hear about the struggles they face. Now this is something you're going to notice too in this article. He keeps saying young men. Women masturbate as well. Pornography is like, it's, there's a real upsurge of pornography amongst women. He, I've, I've talked to him, he actually, he would change that. Now he does change this now in how he writes about pornography and masturbation. He includes women a whole lot more, but this is kind of more men directed because it was maybe back in the day. Um, uh, and I know that this is a near universal struggle. I was recently convicted that if the church won't speak out about this issue, no one will. This is the type of issue that I suspect only Christians really wrestle with. It's an issue that our culture regards as irrelevant. To question the morality of masturbation is folly to those who accept it and seek to honor no higher authority. If it feels good, do it, is the wisdom of our age, but this is no wisdom at all. I know that many Christians have questions about this issue and are troubled by it, and hence I will write about it again in the hope that it can help Christians understand God's design for sexuality. In what I anticipate will be a two-part article, I would like to bring a biblical perspective to autoeroticism, or the act of providing sexual pleasure to oneself. The Bible is silent on explicit discussion of the subject of autoeroticism. There is no place in Scripture where we will find a clear statement allowing 
or condemning the practice. Thus, we have to begin our study by attempting to come to a biblical understanding of sexuality, God's purpose and design in human sexuality. Once we understand this, we will have a foundation upon which we can build an understanding of autoerotism. God's design for sex. We will begin by providing the groundwork for a theology of sex. This is a topic that can consume as much time and space as we choose to give it, uh, so we will discuss it only briefly. Consider this nothing more than a framework. Much of the following was drawn from uh, Sex, Romance, and the Glory of God by C.J. and Carolyn Mahaney. Much of that book is available as a chapter in Sex and the Supremacy of Christ, edited by John Piper and Justin Taylor. Both books are well worth reading. A gift from God. Andy Warhol said sex is the biggest nothing of all time. Andy Warhol was dead wrong. Sex is a gift of God, and it is inherently good, because the God who gave us sex is good. God created us in such a way that sex is a natural part of what it means to be human. We glorify God when we use this gift in the way God intends, and when we use it to his glory. In Genesis 2, we read about the creation of a woman. After God gave Eve to Adam, the Bible teaches us, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Genesis 2.24 it is God who designed sex and who gave it to us. It is a good gift and one that must be used as the creator intends for marriage. When God gave sex to humans, he provided a restriction. He decreed that sex is to be enjoyed only within marriage. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Hebrews 13.4 God gave us this restriction not to be burdensome, but to increase the pleasure and intimacy found in God-glorifying sex. As the creator of sexuality, he was free to place any restrictions he felt necessary. And thus, so that uh, we could benefit from sexuality in the way he intended, he placed simple, uh, this, this simple restriction on it. For our pleasure, God created sex to be pleasurable. What more evidence do we need than the clitoris? A part of the body that has only one function, to receive and transmit sexual pleasure. And not only is sex pleasurable, but it is mutually pleasurable, allowing the husband and wife to give and receive pleasure at the same time. This leads to mutual sexual fulfillment. A servant's mindset is crucial in the marriage bed, so each partner primarily seeks after the interests of the other. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. 1 Corinthians 7, 3-4. Sex is pleasurable because God made it to be pleasurable. We are not to feel guilty or burdened by sexual desire or by sexual pleasure. For intimacy... Humans are not entirely capable of comprehending the depth of intimacy brought about by sexual union. The word know is often used in scripture to speak of the deep, intimate knowledge brought about by sex. God also speaks of the husband and wife being of one flesh through this act. Carolyn Mahaney writes, Marital sex is the pinnacle of human bonding. It is the highest form of the communication of love, a language that expresses love without words. It calls forth the deepest, most powerful emotions. It creates intimacy within marriage like nothing else. In fact, as we give and receive the gift of lovemaking, this intimacy will grow stronger and more precious as the years go by. Each encounter will lead us to a, a deeper knowing of the one we love. 
One of God's deepest purposes in creating sex was to use it to bond husband to wife and wife to husband. It is something they are to share only with each other and something that will bring a deep and intimate knowledge reserved only for a spouse. For procreation, sex is a means of pleasure and intimacy, but also has the purpose of procreation. Uh, Through the joyful act of sex, God works through us to create new life. These five points provide a framework for a biblical understanding of sex. Any questions about that so far? Culture and sex. Our culture promotes a view of sex diametrically opposed to what scripture teaches. This is a view that makes sex appear as little more than a biological function, like breathing or urinating. In this view, men have a sexual appetite they must fulfill, and hence they hunt around, much like a male dog seeks out a female who is in heat. Like a dog, a man can barely even help himself from fulfilling his craving. Television and movies now portray women in a similar light as sexual creatures who are able to separate love and marriage from the act of sex. Yet, biblical sexuality is far different. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of 1 Corinthians 6, 16-18, brings this wisdom, brings wisdom that reads more like a commentary on this passage than a translation of it. He writes this, There is more to sex than mere skin on skin. Sex is as much spiritual mystery as physical act. As written in scripture, the two become one. Since we want to become spiritually one with the master, we must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy, leaving us more lonely than ever, the kind of sex that can never become one. There is a sense in which sexual sins are different from all others. In sexual sin, we violate the sacredness of our own bodies, these bodies that were made for God-given and God-modeled love for becoming one with another. And not only do we violate our own bodies, but the bodies of those with whom we have sex. Sex outside of marriage is a perversion of God's intent. Perhaps the clearest biblical teaching on sexuality is found in the Song of Solomon. This book portrays a man and a woman who are desperately in love with each other. This is uh, <clears throat> taken from Sexual Man's and the Glory of God. These two desperately desire to be together, but not simply so that they can experience sexual gratification. They want to be together because they are in love. And the sex they enjoy with one another is an expression of that love. Their mutual attraction is not primarily hormonal. It is primarily relational. The sex that is so beautifully depicted in the Song of Solomon is founded primarily on relationship, not technique or the mere fulfillment of animal urges. The consummation of the sexual act is only one place on a long continuum filled with relationship, loving words, expressions of desire, and finally, physical intimacy. If we were to read Song of Solomon as a textbook on how to have sex, we would misread Solomon's intent. The book is a guide on how to build a loving, intimate relationship. It shows a view of sexuality that is far different from what we see on television or the movies. It is love that leads to sex rather than sex that leads to love. God's purpose in sexuality, then, is to provide ultimate intimacy between a husband and wife. There is no greater expression of vulnerable intimacy between human beings, and this is a large part of what makes marriage so unique. I think this was written far enough back that I think he's engaging with Mark Driscoll in his crazy sermon series on uh, Song of Solomon, which is almost like a sex manual. It was really crazy and stupid and unwise and morally bad, I think, to actually preach those sermons. So I think he's responding to that. That's why he's mentioning this. Consequences. God's plan for sex is clear, and so is God's expectation for how we will use this gift. 
if we recklessly violate this gift, we ought to expect to suffer consequences. The book of Proverbs makes this clear. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. Proverbs six twenty-seven to 32 There are always consequences to sin. If we want to be people who honor God, and if we want to avoid the consequences of sin by avoiding sin, we must be people who think deeply about issues, and even issues as difficult as this one. Before I continue, I would like to address one concern that was raised in the comment section yesterday. One commentator wrote, a commenter wrote, a happily married man's advice to lonely, sex-starved Christian singles may be theologically right on the money, but nevertheless leaves the reader cold, unmoved, even resentful. It's easy to dispense advice on how to diet while stuffing your face at the buffet table, after all. I would suggest, though, and despite what this com- commenter says, that this is an issue that applies to married men as well as single. Men or women who masturbate when they are unmarried may not find that having regular sex with, with a marriage relationship will necessarily or immediately remove the desire to masturbate. Sex and masturbation, while similar in some ways, are also dissimilar. One is pure. The other is sinful. One is selfless. The other is selfish. One requires effort. The other is quick and easy. When a person has many years of selfish sex in his background, he may not find the transition away from that to be simple. Sin cannot always be removed as easily as simply replacing it with something else. More often it requires dedicated effort and many pleas for the aid of the Holy Spirit for sin to be eradicated. Blindness, baldness, and hairy palms. I suspect my childhood is typical in that I heard many rumors about the physical effects of autoeroticism. I was told that people who did it went blind, lost their hair, grew hair on their palms, or went crazy. But as James Dobson says, if it did cause such afflictions, the entire male population, about half of the females, would be blind, weak, simple-minded, and sick. Between 95 and 98% of all boys engage in this practice, and the rest have been known to lie. My parents certainly never told me such lies, neither did any of my teachers or youth leaders, yet these rumors were passed from boy to boy on the playground, usually long before any of us had ever given serious consideration to sexuality. We did not know what the act was, but we did know the supposed repercussions. While these rumors are clearly unfounded, they continue to be told simply because autoeroticism is a topic that breeds guilt and shame. It encourages worry that a person will be found out. Yet there is no physical reason to deny oneself this sexual pleasure. As someone wisely said, masturbation isn't a filthy habit that makes people dirty. It only reveals the dirt that's already in our hearts. The, now, this is going to get qualified because it sounds like he's contradicting everything. He's not contradicting it. The physical act of masturbation simply points to a deeper problem within. So while autoeroticism is not filthy and does not make a person filthy, there can, however, still be a mental and spiritual toll as many people struggle with feelings of guilt, remorse, shame because of their habits. This may be a convincing reason for some people to avoid participating. Uh, For many, it is not. Sadly, guilt is not enough of a motive for many of us to curb our sinful behavior. Purity of mind. 
The most common reason given why people should not engage in autoeroticism is that it pollutes the mind. Sexual gratification is not merely a physical act, but one that engages the mind. In speaking with men who struggle with this sin, one will find that the act brings far less guilt than the accompanying fantasies. These fantasies run rampant during acts of autoeroticism. This type of fantasy can be dangerous in at least two ways. First, as most adults have learned the hard way, reality is rarely as wonderful as fantasy. Many people create expectations for sex in their minds that they cannot, that the reality cannot meet. I dare say that rarely has a teenage boy created a fantasy in which his partner gently and lovingly rebuffs his advances because she is too tired. Neither has he concocted a fantasy in which she declines participation in a particular act because she finds it uncomfortable or distasteful. The fact is that, the fact is that fantasy can create unhealthy and unrealistic expectations of sex. Second, fantasy will rarely involve legitimate sexual partners. A teenage girl has no legitimate reason to pursue sexual fantasy, for she has no God-given partner with whom she can consummate such desire. While it is perfectly legitimate for a husband to dream of sexual encounters with his wife, autoeroticism may encourage him to fill his mind with thoughts of other women, or even to gaze at pornographic materials to fuel his mind. Fantasy is dangerous when left unchecked. Autoeroticism is wrong when it violates the Lord's teaching about moral purity. But I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Fantasy can also be dangerous when it creates unrealistic expectation. Some will protest that when they engage in autoeroticism, it is merely a physical act and one that they do to relieve stress or boredom. They will insist that they do not succumb to thinking inappropriate thoughts. In his book, When Good Men Are Tempted, Bill Perkins writes, It appears to me that masturbation is amoral. Under some circumstances, it's acceptable behavior. On other occasions, it's clearly wrong. He goes on to provide three tests which will gauge whether a particular instance is right or wrong. The thought test, whether the act is accompanied by inappropriate fantasies. The self-control test, whether the act becomes obsessive. And the love test, whether autoeroticism leads to a person failing to fulfill the needs of his or her spouse. I found it interesting that in a book about sexual purity, this topic was covered in only two pages, and that the pages were at the very end of the book, almost as if this topic were an afterthought. Millions of men and women will tell you that it is far more than an afterthought. James Dobson teaches a similar view of autoeroticism being amoral. When I was young, my parents gave me his book, Preparing for Adolescence. Anyone read that book? It's a bit dated now, but it's a classic. And I remember this teaching well. He believes that every boy and most girls try it, and that the guilt brought about by the act destroys many children. Thus, he believes parents should rarely speak to their children about it, and if they do, to reassure their children that such practices are normal. Here is what he says on his website, and thanks to a commenter for digging this up. It is my opinion that masturbation is not much of an issue with God. It is a normal part of adolescence that involves no one else. It does not cause disease. It does not produce babies, and Jesus does not mention it in the Bible. I'm not telling you to masturbate, and I hope you won't feel the need uh, for it. But if you do, it is my opinion that you should not struggle with guilt over it. Why do I tell you this? Because I deal with so many Christian young people who are torn apart with guilt over masturbation. They want to stop and just can't. I would like to help you avoid that agony. This response is shockingly humanistic. The way to avoid the agony of guilt is not to ignore sin, but to focus on the gospel. 
Dobson feels that this is an issue young people should not be expected to agonize over. Speak honestly and open to young people, though, and they will tell you that what that they do want to talk about it and that they do want to be reassured that it is wrong and that they can, can and should overcome it. The guilt they feel is not irrational, but good guilt, guilt brought about by sin and intended to help correct it. Like Perkins, Dobson does not engage in a biblical examination of this particular topic. Like Perkins, he concludes that autoeroticism is amoral because there is no specific Bible passage that allows or condemns the practice. Steve Hayes also writes recently about the potentially amorality of masturbation. If masturbation is a sin, then it's a little odd that Scripture would, would leave the believer guessing about its moral status. Yet, as we will see, the Bible is not silent and does not leave us guessing. While Scripture may not mention masturbation explicitly, I would suggest that this simply points to the fact that it speaks so much and so thoroughly about sexuality that there is no need to speak about masturbation. Just as Scripture speaks to, uh, so thoroughly about murder and the value of human life, but there is no need to speak explicitly about abortion. I believe the Bible's teaching on sexuality proves that masturbation is sinful, whether it's an act accompanied by simple fantasy or an act that is purely physical. God's purpose in sexuality. Let me just cough here, sorry. We learned that the purpose of sex is to provide ultimate intimacy between a husband and wife. There is no greater expression of vulnerability, intimacy between two human beings. A close examination of the scripture's teaching on sexuality will uncover no reason to believe that God ever intended sex to be a private pursuit. The heart and soul of sexuality is the giving and receiving of sexual pleasure. Sex is intended to be a means of mutual fulfillment where a husband thinks foremost of his wife and the wife thinks foremost of her husband. As they fulfill each other's needs, they have their own fulfilled. It is a beautiful picture of intimacy. As any married couple can testify, the more selfless the sex, the better sex becomes. The more each spouse seeks to please the other, the more fulfilling and gratifying the act becomes. It is beautiful in that regard. As we might expect, the opposite is also true. Sex that is completely selfish is sex that is demeaning and unfulfilling. Rape, an act of utter selfishness, may be the ultimate expression of selfish sex. Sex is so important to a marriage that the Bible forbids us from neglecting it. 1 Corinthians 7.5 Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This deprivation can refer not only to time, but to activity. A man should no more deprive his wife over a period of time than he should deprive her by private sexual activity. As married couples can attest to the importance of sex, I'm sure most can also look to times when they neglected this activity and can testify to the difficulties in, it caused in their marriage. God intends for husbands and wives to have sex with each other and to do so regularly. And this, the mutual giving and receiving which lies at the heart of God's purpose for sexuality is exactly what autoeroticism cannot provide. It strips sexuality of its divine purpose of mutual fulfillment. It takes an act God intends to build relationships and makes it an act of selfish isolation. Masturbation and fantasy attempt to create a false intimacy rather than the true intimacy between a husband and wife that God has built into the marriage relationship. 
The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. A A man's body does not belong to himself, but to his present or future wife, and ultimately to God. A wife's body belongs to her husband and to God. Likewise, a single woman's body belongs to her future spouse and is to be kept pure for him. Neither spouse has the right to express sexuality apart from the other. When the Bible tells a man that he is to express his sexuality exclusively with his wife, why do so many interpret this to mean that he can express his sexuality with his wife or by himself? How bad? By now, I think it should be clear that masturbation is a sin, one that ought to be repented of, and that Christians need to fight against. Sadly, though, for many young Christians, it becomes an issue that begins to define their spiritual state. Some people feel such guilt for this act that they begin to question their salvation and begin to see themselves only through the lens of this sin. There is no doubt that this is a serious sin, but it should not be given so much prominence that people can see nothing past it. When we inflate the importance of this act, we'll either overlook the many evidences of God's work in us, or we'll ignore other more serious expressions of lust that God wants us to address. Pornography. I want to add a brief word here about pornography. I feel that it is relevant to the discussion simply because pornography and masturbation are so closely allied. Despite this connection, many discussions of pornography shy away from also discussing masturbation. Yet the whole point of looking at pornography is to fuel sexual fantasy and to culminate in masturbation or another selfish form of sexual expression. Few Christians would argue that pornography is acceptable, and yet countless numbers are attracted to it or ensnared by it. Like masturbation, pornography is inherently self-centered. It creates a false intimacy between an anonymous person in a magazine or on a screen on the viewer. It provides uh, escapism and release but requires no effort and has no self-denial. It creates a selfish, self-centered, self-focused perversion of the true sacred act, not a selfish pursuit. Do you see then how autoeroticism denies the very purpose for which God created sex? Sex was not meant to be a selfish pursuit. It was not intended to focus on a a, a person's thoughts on himself and his own needs. Rather, sex was designed as a means of fulfilling the Lord's command to esteem another higher than oneself. The pleasure of sex is not meant to be enjoyed in isolation, but to be enjoyed while providing that same pleasure to another. Autoeroticism cannot fulfill God's design for sexuality and thus has no place in the life of one who calls himself or herself a Christian. Gospel. For those who struggle with this sin, take heart. For there is hope. The blood of Jesus was shed for sins like this one, and the power of the Holy Spirit has been given to us so that we can overcome sins like this one. This is not a sin that is beyond the power of God to overcome. You can be set free from it. Uh, Yeah, we'll stop. We're going to stop there. There's a little bit more we can actually avoid, and it's, it's fine. But any, any questions? It may be something that you just want to maybe take that home and read it through again and make, actually discuss this with maybe with your spouse, or actually you can come talk to me or Alex or another brother or sister at the church, and you know, this is something that needs to be thought through, prayed through, talked about. It's not like, you know, there's, a, there's enough kind of in the culture maybe perhaps with, with in a Christian culture particularly where this is like a deep dark dark thing and we don't talk about it I, I, very, I was looking forward to talking about this it's an important thing to discuss as Christians 
So amongst ourselves, this is stuff, and like married men, married women, we can talk about this too. It's, it's, it's a, it doesn't stop, you know, once, once you're single, once you're, once you're married. Um, there's all, room, all kinds of room for sexual sin within marriage. So no questions, that's all right. Um, we'll come back to maybe a little bit more next week, but then I think we're moving on to birth control next week.